Hi, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. Welcome to the October Atoms. Some controversies for you. Let's start with ketoacidosis and fluids. Well, the debate around fluid resuscitation and maintenance in diabetic ketoacidosis has been smouldering for years. The recent large PECAN, PECAN fluid trial providing some guidance, but not drawing a line under all the issues. In the light of the study, Revisiting the arguments is useful, and a group of three papers reopen the discussion. The catalyst on this occasion has been the publication of new British Society of Paediatric Endocrinology, BSPED, guidance, recommendations which leave ultimate decision-making to the individual clinician, but in broad terms suggest an initial resuscitation bolus of 10 mils per kilo to all children. Our first correspondent, John Lilly, on behalf of the South Thames Retrieval Service, whose policy has been restrictive since 2008, after three deaths from DKA-associated cerebral edema, argues that degree of dehydration, which is an agreed moot point by all parties, is all too easily overestimated, particularly when capillary refill time, prolonged by hypocapnia, inherent to ketosis, is used to make the assessment. Neil Wright, on behalf of BSPED, argues that once initial resuscitation is completed, there's actually little difference philosophically between the two approaches. The physiology, science and moot points are weighed up in Robert Tasker's editorial, in which one bystander in recent debate, the rate of insulin infusion, is also revisited, a lower exposure causing less rapid shifts in osmotic pressure, and theoretically at least, less risk of cerebral edema. Here we come full circle, in that the number of children developing this complication is so low that even a trial as large as the PECAN fluid trial is potentially underpowered. Perinatal encephalopathy. The dangers of overdiagnosis of a unclear entity are highlighted in Mustaya's systematic review. The term perinatal encephalopathy, or PE, but sometimes also called the syndrome of intracranial hypertension, was coined by Russian paediatrician Yuri Yakunin in the 1970s, referring to a range of signs and symptoms thought to be attributable to a perinatal insult, mediated by a rise in intracranial pressure. The notion was admirable, but the group of disorders inevitably heterogeneous. As the term became more widely used in Eastern European countries, it was sometimes applied to infants and children with transient signs and no discernible pathology. The nomenclature was paradoxically reinforced by the lack of a unifying diagnostic test, the label being at the discretion of the paediatrician or paediatric neuropathologist to which many of these infants were referred. Diagnoses results in treatments and a wide range of agents had been used on occasions, anticonvulsants, mineral and metabolic supplements, diuretics, neuropeptides, vasoactive agents, psychostimulants and physical therapies. The issue of the PE syndrome has long been on the radar of the WHO and was a subject of a meeting in St. Petersburg in 2007, at which many positive signs of change were seen. This review shows further change, but some areas of continuing concern related to the diagnosis, which still appears to be applied in some regions. These potential harms are both direct and indirect, which include the failure to diagnose other disorders, unnecessary follow-up, diagnostic procedures, the development of the vulnerable child syndrome, and even deferral of vaccinations. After sudden infant death. 
Sudden unexplained death in infancy is a rare event, thankfully, and a second death in a subsequent child, extremely unusual. But to date, there have been little data to quantify the recurrence risk and counsel parents. Garstang's analysis of the care of the next infant database from 2000 to 2015 provides some answers. Over this period, 6,608 live-born infants were registered, 171 first-born to mothers whose male partners had previously experienced an unexplained infant death, 29 unexpected infant deaths following the index death occurred in 26 families, 23 with two deaths and three with three. The second SUDI rate was estimated as 3.93 per thousand live births and the third as 115 per thousand live births. The findings should not though engender complacency as there have been in the past been convictions for homicide. The risk of repeat SUDI in a family is still 10 times that of the general population, a reflection no doubt of inherent genetic risks as well as environmental factors, including maternal smoking and unsafe sleeping. Coney can't address intrinsic risk factors, but these are very vulnerable families who need comprehensive care and support packages to help them understand safe sleeping, address mental health problems and enhance their capacity to parent. Emergency steroids and asthma prophylaxis. In a neat and salutary reminder of the reason some children reach the stage of requiring rescue oral steroids at routine clinic appointments, Wilson reviews experience from a quaternary respiratory department with respect to adherence to prescribed prophylaxis. In the series, 25 children received 32 courses of oral steroids. For those episodes with full data, uptake of prescriptions for inhaled steroid prophylaxis, the median uptake over the previous six months was only 33%, and only 29% of episodes was uptake greater than 75%. So, rather than just prescribe the emergency course or describe it to bad luck or a virus going round, maybe check on adherence. This and related themes are explored in Ian Cena's viewpoint exploration of the National Respiratory Audit Database. Monitoring inflammatory bowel disease. Equally pragmatic is the issue with calprotectin stability described by Heismer. Stored calprotectin is pivotal in the diagnosis, monitoring of and to treatment modifications in inflammatory bowel disease. Often a sample will be taken in the home and dropped off at the lab or sent by post, having spent time at room temperature in the interim rather than the recommended four degrees centigrade. The fall in levels is so great over 35% that disease activity will inevitably be underestimated and treatment not necessarily increased appropriately. So before reducing immune modulating treatment immediately, check out a sample travel before analysis and if any doubt, simply recheck before making any changes. That's all for this month. Hope you've enjoyed it. Be sure to check out the website on adc.bmj.com. See you next time. Thank you.